0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of Chapter and Verse The Art of Selling Children's Books, the podcast brought to you by Rocket and the Bookseller Magazine. In this week's episode, we wanted to talk about creating and maintaining a children's book brand. And our guest is the fabulous Liz Pichon, creator of the Tom Gates series, which has just turned 10. Over the past decade, sales of Tom Gates have exceeded 11 million units worldwide, according to Scholastic, and the books have been translated into 45 languages, including Mongolian. The 18th book, Ten Tremendous Tales, has just been released and a TV series has launched on Sky. So hi, Liz, and welcome to the
1: podcast. Hi. I didn't know it was in Mongolian as well. That's news to me. That was a fun
0: fact from my
1: my research this morning.
0: Now, (laughs) Uh, let's go back to the beginning. We are here to talk about the enduring legacy of Tom Gates, but obviously you presumably just started with an idea for one book. Can you tell me about how that came
1: about? I, yeah, I mean, I've been doing picture books, so I illustrated other people's books to begin with, and, you know, I didn't really know how, I I didn't really have much of an idea of how long books took to do, and, you know, how much work (laughs) that goes into them, and I because I've been illustrating other people's books, I kind of thought, you know, actually, if I start writing my own stories, then um, I can illustrate those as well. And also primarily, I wouldn't have to wait for somebody to give me a job, (laughs) which was a big factor. And I wanted to illustrate funny books. So Tom Gates started off as a picture book idea and gradually morphed from a picture book into a book for older children so it took me a couple of years to develop the style and to kind of get the voice Um, you know it went off to the publishers they really liked the style they really liked the voice and but they didn't think there was enough of a story so it did take a little while and then then I kind of imagined by then I'd done lots of drawings and I kind of had got Tom Gates as a character and then I just wrote it in an exercise book and I wrote the first part of it, imagining that Tom had been um, away on his summer holiday and it had been a complete disaster and he'd been camping. And so he was writing about that. Um, And because I'd done picture books, I was very keen to use the fonts and use drawings and try and keep those page turning moments. And so I started off initially just treating every page a bit like a picture book, not really thinking that if this was a book for older children and it was bigger, that it was going to have to—that I was going to have to do it on every single page, so that's how it started. And I gave it to my agent, Caroline Walsh, who I've been with for well over twenty years. She was always very encouraging about, you know, getting me to write my own stories. And we sent it off um, to publishers, and I got seven offers in two weeks. Wow! <laughs> and that has never ever happened before or since. So it was a bit of a—you know—so first of all, I was a bit like, oh oh my goodness you know and then I hadn't actually written any more than the exercise book as well so I got a three book deal and I went with Scholastic in the end um, because they they'd done my picture books in the past and also they had um, the clubs and fairs which I kind of thought that this was the sort of book that children would really enjoy reading and it was another way to get the book into their hands I didn't have a track record for writing for older children at all and there were a few publishers that were really interested and i and you know they would got quite a few big names on their books and i remember thinking well oh, if this doesn't go well i'm the one who's going to get the elbow <laughs> so that was my thing. And so you know i had a relationship with scholastic and i knew the people there so um that was a, that was nice so that's what so that's what happened so i had three book deal and so i wrote the first book and it came out in april like 10 years ago um and you know it was like a sort of slow soft launch I did little few events did a few bits and pieces and and I was just really happy to see a book <laughs> I think that's when people sort of say what's the best thing about getting a book out there and you know you have that a moment first when you get a book published and then you have that moment when you finish it and then you have that moment when you first see it in the shops and not every shop took Tom Gates to begin with you know it wasn't in the supermarkets there were some people that didn't some of the books book, bookshops didn't take it but the clubs and fairs and the children I had great support from librarians as well um, particularly offering out to children reluctant readers so that became a thing quite early on I think that kids that that got hold of it and that, that saw it and you know, I did lots of Events and lots of school visits and things like that. And I think that really helped in the beginning as well. And then I won the Roldale Folly Prize.
0: Okay. So, did that help boost sales and knowledge of Tom?
1: Yeah, I think it, you know, there's no doubt about it. That definitely gave it a bit of a platform. You know, Michael Rosen, the brilliant Michael Rosen, was sort of running that. And um, it was also interestingly, it's one of the few prizes that co edition publishers will put that on the front of the book because obviously Roald Dahl is such a famous person and I think it did and and just it's one of those sort of coincidental things I did the I've done literary festivals before with my picture books but really small you know like small picture book events you know (laughs) count the amount of people on one hand and i got the opportunity to do hay festival and i think so, there was somebody i was told that i think the telegraph sponsored it at the time and there was somebody who one of the journalists was came to see my event and he used to do the reviews for children's books in the telegraph and he asked he saw it and was you know well done you know asked asked me if i gave me his card and stuff and i didn't have time he asked me if i wanted to go back and have a chat about the book you know in the back at the tent and maybe do some drawing because they had like a sort of set up there and I didn't have time. I had to go pop on my train, but I kept his card and it wasn't until a few days later, I remember looking at it and thinking, God, I really rec- recognize that name. And, and I thought it's Martin Chilton. Do you know Martin Chilton? Yes. Well, yes. I was at, <laughs> coincidentally, weirdly, I was at school with his, um, his sister was in my class at school. The last time I remember seeing him, you know, he was like younger than her. We were at secondary school and him and his sister used to fight like crazy. And I remember going back to Jen, going back to their house and him and Jenny had a massive punch up in front of me that they used to do, right? <laughs> like for a laugh. And then Martin turned around to me and said, do you want to fight? And I was like, no, thanks. <laughs> so I sent him an email and saying, are you the same Martin that's got a sister called Jenny? Because if you are, the last time I saw you, you asked me if I wanted to fight. <laughs> Brilliant. So we yeah, so we sort of met up and had lunch and did it. And then after that, I won the Royal Dell Funny Prize. And it was great because I had a he had a really nice little piece in the paper. So it was all these tiny little things that you know came together, and that definitely helped.
0: Tell us about Tom. Who is he and what kind of adventures does he go on?
1: Tom is really based on me when I was a kid. Um, I've put lots of things in the character that I used to do when I was younger and And then I've also sort of pinched things from my own children's lives. And also, you know, when I've done school visits and things like that, my son, who's now 30, he used to have a teacher who wrote really funny comments in his reading book, in his book. Like, so I'd look in his book bag and like, she'd always write something really funny and amusing in her big handwriting. So it was just a combination of all these little things that um, I put together that helped to build Tom up as a character but I was really interested in writing about small details of family life funny things that happened at school funny things that happened at home sibling relationships so none of the stories had really big plots they were all just about small details and and Tom obviously was very much part of that and I wanted to include things in the book that I used to really like doing when I was a kid so I loved funny books I loved reading comics I loved making things I loved uh, listening to music, you know, albums, gatefold sleeves, sitting with headphones on listening to music and writing my own little poems, doing drawings and doodles, copying things. That was the kind of thing that I thought, OK, if I'm going to write this book for older children, let's just fill it with all the things that I really loved doing and also to try and give it those page turning moments like I said with picture books you know so I was trying to set up you know the bits of comedy where you'd have that pause and then you turn a page and something funny would happen and so that's how that's how it all started really and that's how Tom's character kind of developed just basically um, trying to remember all the stuff that I used to really enjoy and basing it on little bits about when I was a kid too.
0: Now, someone who knows all about branding in children's books is Chaney Smith. She works at Pam Macmillan and she has experience with working with all kinds of brands and authors, including Julia Donaldson. Her insights are incredibly insightful, as you are about to hear. So, hello, Chaney. Can you introduce yourself and tell us what your job is?
2: Um, yes. So um, I'm Chaney Smith. I'm a senior marketing executive at Macmillan Children's Books um which is at Pam MacMillan and i've been at Pam Mac now for it'll be 6 years in like next week i think
0: congratulations
2: thank you <laughs> um and i started at Pam Mac as a creative access intern um in editorial actually and then was in editorial for a couple of years and then moved over to our comms team um and i've been there for 3
0: years now i think enjoying it
2: yeah it's really great it's um it's really different so I'm on the marketing side of it I feel like it's that's kind of the closest relative to editorial outside of editorial so it's still quite creative and still getting to do new things and, and coming up with like really interesting ideas and things to kind of engage consumers so yeah I really enjoy it and I work across our list so from picture book all the way up to YA.
0: Now, when you are marketing titles from an author whose books have essentially become a brand, or perhaps the author themselves is the brand, how is that different from working on campaigns when you are promoting just one particular book?
2: So brand titles, there's a lot of similarities between a campaign for a brand and campaigns for like standalone books or debuts. But I think probably the biggest difference is that it brings with it, the advantage of already having that like consumer recognition, which I think for anyone in in marketing, that's what you aspire to with a campaign is for someone to see something and recognize it immediately as relating to that brand. So I think that's what a brand title or a brand book brings is that consumer recognition which is invaluable and it's that trust that a reader has that they they know that they can pick up this book and that they're going to enjoy it and I think that's a price like it's priceless that's what we're all trying to emulate all the time with all of our campaigns but I do think that it's that consumer trust that's so important and is what the brand titles are built on and which we do it for all of our books and you know our publicity team they work to send the books out and they send it out for reviews and they do blog tours with you know, like trusted voices on um, on social media, and then we, in the marketing side, we would do it with creating reader reviews online and um, that kind of thing. And I think that's really important, especially in children's publishing, is that those recommendations. It's just you can't you can't undervalue someone recommending a book to someone whether it is through an online review or whether it is through teachers and librarians who we work with through you know like agency cycle of reading or um, the library associations or the reading agency and I think with a brand title they kind of already have that behind them whereas with a debut that's what you're trying to build so it's just that you're a little bit further up the ladder already so it makes it a bit easier but um, that word of mouth as a tool I guess mm. is it's just it's the most useful thing and it's also the most like enigmatic it's the thing that you can't it's hard to like pinpoint what what is it that makes a book kind of snowball with that word of mouth
0: yeah just sort of that excitement that grows and yeah people people kind of feed off of that don't they
2: yeah for sure but one thing that is different I would say about brand books is probably the timeline that they work to Because there's so many more people involved, there's going to be more stakeholders. So there's more. It means that the process is just a little bit more involved in that. You need to build that in earlier and in the planning stages that you've left time for that. So it's it can't be so kind of off the cuff or oh we've seen this and we want to do it because there's a bit more consulting involved in it. But at the same time, that means that you're kind of in part of a bigger story of something, which brings along its own advantages.
0: I think the word stakeholders there is really interesting and I think a lot of our listeners might not necessarily know what that means. I mean so who would be these additional stakeholders that you have to consult with when you're dealing with someone with a huge profile?
2: On like a normal campaign the stakeholders would usually just be internal and then say like the author and the agent whereas if you're dealing with a brand if there's licensing involved um, it will be the licensing holders and then the bigger the brand, the bigger it builds. So for, we've, I've worked on um, the Moomins before. So, you know, there's the Moomin family and then there's also the licensing holders and then there's usually like a PR agency and a marketing agency who kind of look look after the whole brand. And then you've got lots of other subsidiaries underneath them. And it's just, when you get to a, a brand that's that big and is that global, you need to make sure that, you know, that everything fits in and that it's all cohesive and that everyone it has it's putting out the same message so that it all just fits together and that just takes some corraling so it just means that you need to you need to build that into the process
0: that sounds super complicated
2: <laughs> um, let's not, have, too, bad. not too bad okay you, you well just need to, you just need to leave some time for it
0: now you mentioned the Moomins there but what are some of the other brands that you've worked on in children's publishing?
2: yeah so I've worked on the Moomins and then uh, one of the other ones that I have worked quite closely on is um, our Julia Donaldson brands so Julia as a brand author herself and then also the media brands within that so the likes of the Gruffalo, Room on the Broom and Snail and the Whale they're really interesting, yeah, because they bring a different dynamic once you have more people involved, and then also those are their opportunities that they afford you. So for the likes of Julia's media, well, Julia and Axel's media brands, we work quite closely with Magic Light Pictures. So they're the company who make the animations, and then they also are the licensing holders. So we've been able to do really great partnerships with some of their other license, their licensees the likes of Goodbubble and Aurora who are people who make like the plush toys we've been able to do really great partnerships and competitions and things with them and you know you can do like book and toy kind of packages and it just gives you new opportunities that you wouldn't have had with a title that's not kind of got that brand recognition yeah and that's that is one of the things that I really that I really love about marketing is the collaboration that you can find whether it's through a brand like that where it's licensing and where it's you know like a licensee partner so you're kind of working on the same thing or whether it's just a partnership that you find yourself when you find that kind of that product that's got the same messaging and has got the same ethos as what you're trying to put out there you you just know that when you do something together like their audience is the exact people that you're trying to you're trying to get your message to and, what you're trying to say or what those people also want to hear and i just think that's really that's really exciting
0: yeah i mean it has to be a pretty big brand to have you know toys and yeah. magic like pictures <laughs> and films it definitely doesn't happen to many people and what are some of the sort of challenges involved with this kind of work i mean obviously you mentioned working with lots of different stakeholders but there must be other types of challenges and how reactive does marketing tend to be
2: yeah i think there's there's definitely big challenges that come along with that I think the biggest one is probably is coming up with like new and fresh ideas because you really need to uh, like avoid consumer fatigue and with a brand it's especially I think with something like um you know like where it's not like a series so you're not going to have a new book so if it's based off one kind of one individual property you need to come up with new and exciting things to say that still stays true to what the brand is but is something that's fresh and new because people don't want to just listen to the same message being told to them over and over
0: again. And when you say message there, what do you mean? What could what would be a sort of example of like a marketing message that you're using in this situation?
2: Like for example, so the gruffalo is kind of the mouse kind of triumphs over the the big gruffalo and you know like standing up for yourself and that you can be a bit wily. So it's making sure that that message is always at the core of what you're saying. So we've done We've kind of taken the Gruffalo younger and we've done Gruffalo baby ranges and we've had, so you've got the classic storybook, but then you've also got a sound book. So that brings something new to it. We've just done something with guide dogs where they created, they've created for blind children, like smells of the Gruffalo. So it's kind of, you know, like it makes it more immersive for them. and You know, it's like an alternative to Braille books that they can interact with the story. So it's just making sure that it always comes back to what the, what the core of the book is, but that you're not just saying the same thing over and over again.
0: Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And I'm guessing that you, you guys, you want to keep bringing new readers to someone like Julia. So this is all about the backlist as well, isn't it? It's not just promoting her and Axel's newest book or latest book. It's also about going back to those beloved classics.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I think bringing in new readers, especially in children's books, is so important because there's always going to be phasing out as children grow. So we've just published in paperback, actually, the fourth What the Lady Bird Heard book, which is by Julia and Lydia Monks. But that kind of brand is 12 years old now. So the 5 year olds who read what the ladybird heard when it first came out—they're now seventeen. Like they're not, they're not interested in the fourth, what the ladybird heard book. So you need to always be bringing in new readers and making sure that you can, you know, like as they kind of journey through it, that there's new stuff for them. But that once they've kind of phased out of that age category, that you've got new readers coming in who are also going to fall in love with it and kind of continue through it. And I think for an author like Julia we really have to lean into that consumer recognition so she's got that level of trust that you know people are always looking for the next for the next Julia Donaldson book and I think that like that's something that doesn't come around very often but people know that they can see a new they can see a book they can see Julia's name on the front of it and they know that they that they're going to enjoy it and they know what they're going to get and they know that it's going to be really good and I think that is invaluable and it's really great because we can use those kind of bigger brands in the backlist to really help highlight either like those new partnerships or the newer books that come from julia and her other illustrators and they're a great way to introduce people to other titles and other things that we think that they might like also We've got the 13-story the Treehouse series by Andy Griffiths and Terry Denton. Mm. And this year, it's going to be the 11th book in the series coming out, which is 143 stories, <laughs> I nice. want to say. Yes, it is. Sorry, I'm just doubting my maths there. Multiplying by thirteen is very difficult. That is difficult.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm just gonna take your word for it. We'll go with that. Yeah.
2: We <laughs> only go up to twelve in school and now can't go any higher. Um but yes, it's the 143-story treehouse. But we would still do work even now with the thirteen story treehouse because that's the first book in the series and it's kind of the gateway title. So we would do One of the really great things that we do is like sampling. So where you take the first couple of chapters and you just have like a mini version of the book with the first couple of chapters in it and you give that out at events. Um, So we've done sampling for the series previously at Chessington. This summer I'm working with the Big Family Festival which is up near Birmingham, and they're going to be doing some, like, we're going to be doing some sampling there. We've done it with, like, magazines and things, and it's just a really great way to give people a taster of a series, and then they they can go off, and they can make their own minds up up about it, and if they enjoy the taster, then they're probably going to be more likely to go out and look for the book and find it
0: themselves. Because of course, with the Treehouse books, you've got the challenge that the author and the illustrator live on the other side of the world.
2: Yes, so we do, we do. You've got to Although come up with are, some
0: innovative things there. Yeah. yeah, they
2: are really great. When Andy, when Andy comes over, he does some really like incredible events. Although with the last couple of years, he hasn't been able to, but hopefully, hopefully
0: next year, maybe. Hopefully, yes. Once uh, everything gets going again, which we all hope will be very soon. Mm. Now, my final question is we are speaking to Liz um, today about how she her books ended up, you know, going on stage and all, all kinds of places. Where are some of the interesting places stories you have worked on ended up?
2: I think for me, one of the most, I guess the most rewarding and like the, the funnest one is when you see when you see books that you've worked on, when you see them as World a book day costumes. when yes. like when kids when kids have decided that they love this character so much that they're going to. to the effort of making a costume and dressing up and like showing it off to all their classmates and you know i think that's just then that's when you know that you've done your job and and you've done your job right and that's really exciting to me but it is also really cool to see the books that you work on like as a tv animation so i worked on uh, the snail and the whale when it was on tv that christmas and um i did make my whole family sit down and watch it with me as i recited all the lines alongside (laughs) alongside the film (laughs) um but yeah i think i've seen stuff on stage on clothing mugs Mm. statues nature trails puppets yeah it's quite a long list but it is it's i think it's exciting no matter where you see them I still get really excited when I see books that I've worked on in bookshops just like where which is where they're supposed to be or you're like a child reading it on a on a train I have I have stopped people on trains and they're like it's a really good book isn't it (laughs) they're like
0: oh yeah (laughs) yeah I imagine that's lovely I have actually been on the Gruffalo Nature Trail myself um, it's great. It's lovely. <laughs> it is delightful. Well, that's all we have got time for. But thank you so much, Tony. It's been uh, really interesting to talk to you today. Um, do you have any last tips for sort of brand marketing before you go?
2: You just need to lean into that kind of lean into that consumer recognition and make the most of it. So it really does open doors because you've got you have a lot to offer and you can really you can build some really great partnerships with people who have really like-minded messaging and are trying to do the same kind of things that you are doing and and say the same types of things. So really
0: lean into that, I think. Tony, thank you very much. Thank you. We just heard from Tony there, who talked about taking books into all different kinds of different directions. Liz, you are so creative. Did you always think you were going to take Tom Gates beyond the book? Was that there from the beginning or did that come later?
1: I think part of that is because I've had a background where I've always done that kind of work. I mean, I worked as a graphic designer and I worked in the record industry. So we were always, you know, right from an early stage, I was working, you know, you'd have to think of an album cover. So you'd work with the artists, you'd work with the photographers, and then we'd have to take the image, turn it into record sleeves, posters, put it on merchandise. So I was always thinking about what you could, different things that you could do with images and... We never had any money. (laughs) We always had to do everything. We always had to sort of think about what you could do with like hardly any budget. And also I have my own little t-shirt company as well. So I used to do market stalls a lot. So you learn how to sort of, you know, put designs on what things sell. And then when I worked as an illustrator, I did lots of greeting cards. So I'd had that background of using designs, using images and putting them onto products. And actually, particularly with greeting cards, you really have to think about character development and how to make things funny. I mean, it's very different from books because obviously you're just doing one single character, but it was that idea about how who it appeals to, you know, greeting cards are really different in some respects, you know, what they're saying to people. So you I had all that background stuff that maybe I hadn't really thought about but I started to sort of put it into practice and you know, I just wanted to do I wanted to introduce kids as well to all the things that I used to really like doing and partly you know I don't have the amazing drawing skills that some people do <laughs> you know so the drawing style I sort of developed for the character I didn't have that to rely on you know I it's not like, especially when you when I started to do events for the book as well, you know, I had to really think about what I was going to say, how I was going to take the book and to show it to children and make it an interesting event from the stories, you know, what was I going to do to bring it to life? And that, I think that all helped as well. So there were little things in the book that I just put in just for fun, you know, like the caramel wafer trick, you know, so you would put something like that in the book because I did it. When i was a kid and then thinking about when you did an event how you could take something like that and actually really engage the children and get them to guess which one and the style of drawing as well i, I realized quite early on that it was something that children it really enjoyed copying you know they like they could it was it was something that felt very obtainable you know i wasn't doing something incredible that they would look at and go oh i'll never be able to do that it was a style that they could see they could take from the books you know, I would draw things that they would recognise. And then I, you know, I loved being able to show them how to take those designs and how to put them onto different things, you know, like, I, like on my nails, I've got my nails on, I'm wearing my badge, they are, I made. Particularly, I would draw on my shoes. <laughs> and it was for me, it was just doing it, you know, just for fun, really, and to sort of show, so that when you came to an event, you know, they had something else to look at and we could, I could talk about it. But um, I think all those little details really helped develop, you know, the, the style. And actually, if you look at the very first book, I don't think you'd, re- you'd think that there were that many things that would be able to come from it. It wasn't like a you're not looking through it and thinking, oh, there's all these ready made designs waiting to be put on different things or music. But yeah, tell
0: me about the music, because that was really interesting. So you wrote some songs and got musicians to perform them. And they are, that's the the band that Tom listens to in the books. Is that right?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's my husband, um, who I met working at the record label. He's an engineer, music engineer and producer. And he'd been in bands. (laughs) You know, uh, know, he'd also been teaching at a college down in Brighton called the Brighton Institute of Modern Music as well. There were always musicians around. So I, very early on, started putting imagined that Tom was in a band that gave it quite a fun dynamic and it gave me a chance to sort of talk about old music as well <laughs> um music's always been in part of you know part of what I've enjoyed and writing you know writing lyrics and writing poems funny poems so I put Tom in a band and I imagined that he wrote songs about his sister when he was really fed up with her so he wrote a horrible song about her, and so the lyrics right from the very right from the beginning were in the book. Book one, two, three. Then I started inventing bands that I thought they would enjoy listening to. So we had Dude Three, then we had Plastic Cup. <laughs> I think I put so far I've got One Dimension, um, <laughs> and you know, just it was just a bit of fun, really. But I've just said to my husband, wouldn't it be great? You know, when I started to do more of the events. literary festivals and going into schools and things you know I've I've been doing the same sort of things even though there were different books obviously they're the same characters so I was very keen to try and do new things and try and you know do new new, bring new um, bits of creativity to the events as well so I asked him whether he'd uh, have a go at writing some songs with the lyrics and he did that and wrote some great songs and then it went one step further when we then thought Oh, wouldn't it be great if we um, if we had a band so that I could go and do an event and then maybe I could bring on, Dude Three would come on and play some songs. And part of that as well was, you know, lots of kids never get the chance to hear uh, live music or to hear a band. So I thought that was another thing that would be quite fun to do. It was very complicated. <laughs> um, but, you know, we did it. We did a couple of tours uh, where I just kind of took myself out of the normal touring venues and we actually booked ourselves and paid for ourselves um venues all across the country which is quite stressful we did all our own merchandising me and my son did ran the stall and we sort of traipsed around the country well scholastic would we, were did you know obviously did promotion and helped us part of it but actually so we did it like that one year and then the next year we had a tour manager <laughs> we did that with a band but it was I loved about it it just um you know it opened up Tom's world a bit so we had kids really enjoying the songs and the music wow and was it a success commercially I think well the first one it was you know it it was a real eye-opener we didn't lose any money (laughs) (laughs) obviously because you've got a band you know everything gets a bit more expensive is not just me but for me it was about just trying something new and I always thought that there are some things that you couldn't measure on a balance sheet you know you might not have, it might not have had an immediate uplift in books but it definitely made Tom Gates feel like it was bigger and gave us opportunities to do other things that I think we definitely wouldn't have been able to do and gave it a bit of longevity as well, just, you know, made it feel like this is something that, you know, we're carrying on doing. We've got a Tom Gates music app that we were able to do with the music. And it just, that that really helped as well when, you know, when, when we came around to um, the stage show, I think, you know, people that were looking at the stage and the TV and things like that, the fact that we had all these other things that were part of the world already, when those opportunities were coming up, I think it's, you um, it's really helped. I mean, people might've done that anyway, but for me, what makes it more interesting is that it's actually, is very much part of the world and the kids can trace the lyrics right back to the beginning of the books. And so it feels like it's got the right tone, the right sort of sense of humor. You know, I'm having fun with the lyrics. I've, I've written country songs and, <laughs> and you know, we're doing all, we're just, I'm literally in the middle of writing another 12 songs for series two of the tv show so you never know where it's going to take you so i you know i didn't i didn't really have a sort of you know set plan and i think it wasn't like i was just i was really wanting to do it because i thought it it would be really you know it would be fun it'd be interesting it would mean we'd be able to do a different type of show and it's also partly because yeah i said I i don't feel like i have those you know, amazing drawing skills or you know, you know I always feel like I have to work a bit that bit extra um, hard when I'm doing those sort of events it wasn't a natural thing for me at all to do I didn't feel like you know I didn't feel totally comfortable doing the live event so part of that was me kind of looking for new things to do to make it um, you know especially when you suddenly realize that people are starting to pay to come and see you you go like oh god I better make it worth their while <laughs>
0: And then, obviously, you mentioned the TV and the stage show there, which super exciting projects. Was that were they your idea, or were you approached by people from those worlds?
1: Uh, the theatre, we were approached. We had we had a couple of people give us ideas of what they thought would be good for Tom Gates, but um, Neil Foster who does, he's the Birmingham Stage Company. So he is really experienced at doing children's theatre touring. Um, he'd done sort of the David Wall- Walliams productions and also Horrible Histories. And he came, I met him and the designer, Jackie, and they were really, they had some really great ideas. And Neil was very keen to write something new. So not to take one particular story from the book, but actually to try and do something, something new. Um, was very keen to write to co-write as well so I thought okay (laughs) fine let's so yeah so we had we literally just you know I'd never done anything like that before I hadn't written anything in script form and we just sort of sat in a room and came up with ideas he had a he had a very clear idea about Tom having problems to solve so we'd set it up at the beginning and then solve them in the end and it was just some of the problems could be big problems, some of them small. So we did the first half together, but like that. And then Neil went away and wrote the first draft. And then I took it back and kind of like put all the character, and you know, I'd um, suggested songs. particular parts of it I was really keen to try and get some of the music in as well and I think I did I I did quite a lot of jigging around and moving around so actually he said "Well, you might as well do the second half on your own.
0: Did you feel like it was you were handing over control and was that difficult?
1: I it it was incredibly collaborative actually and particularly in the theatre world I mean I didn't ever feel like that I think I had such a strong sense of the character and things that were funny, what they would do and what they wouldn't do. I think there's an awful lot of stuff that I kind of take for granted that I think people would necessarily know. And also because I'm writing, you know, because I've written all all the books, you know, I I know how the characters would react. Like Neil was very keen to have them visit, do a school visit, you know, like of somewhere. He wanted to go to a biscuit factory and he was saying, oh, it could be this, you know, and and I was worried it was going to be a bit like um sort of charlie and the chocolate factory so my my thing is always like let's in Im- let's let's get tom to imagine what he thinks the biscuit factory is going to be he thinks it's going to be amazing <laughs> just you know like you know charlie of the chocolate factory but i I'd, I'd, I'd had the opportunity to visit the Tunnock's factory and they were really lovely but if anyone goes to a factory you know you have to wear hair nets and it's all very and things are in tanks and you don't actually get to see very much <laughs> you get to see little bits so I was sort of able to say like instead of that why don't we do this you know this will be and it was really you know a very collaborative process and Mark had the opportunity to write all the music as well for the stage book, which he hadn't done so that was I was I was able to help you know, give suggestions. And I did the same with the designer as well. So I worked really closely. So lots of the drawings for the sets, the backdrops, you know, we kind of looked at them, split them up between us. So I was doing Tom's bedroom and did lots of drawings and I'd send them over. To a certain extent, of course, you're giving it over and it is a different, product, a different type of work. But for me, it was really exciting to see how the world could get bigger. And there's no point trying to do all the same things that are in the book I mean half the fun about doing a stage show is actually you've got real people doing it and they can do different things and we can bring different things to the stage and trying to make it funny and also we really wanted it so that the kids who knew the books you know they would be really excited about it so we wanted to for them to see to have some things that they'd recognize but also to be surprised and you know and entertained and also a really important thing for me particularly with was it wasn't just the children that you've got those layers that the parents and the adults would enjoy as well so
0: and of course you've got the tv show which is out now and you were heavily involved in that tell me about the format and what the tv show is and how it's different from the books
1: well the, the rights for the TV, we had quite a few people make proposals, and I ended up what, um, going with an independent producer and an independent animation uh, company, so it's Ken and Arabella, and they've combined together uh, and set up a company called Tom Gates Entertainment. And actually, Arabella had come to see one of my events in Glasgow, and she worked as a film producer, and she sort of got very excited about it and said, are oh, the rights Still available and we were actually in the process of talking to different people so that was quite a long time ago that was about four or five years ago so it did take quite a long time to get things get the ball rolling and one of the reasons I picked them to work with is because again they were very keen to work collaboratively and I mean a lot of companies you know once you sign on the dotted line it's kind of taken and it's you know that's it <laughs> Um, but it wasn't that kind of a production. We didn't have, you know, it wasn't, we didn't have like tons and tons of money or anything like that. So it was very much, they've been really good uh, about picking really good people to work with, particularly. And so initially it was, I was very keen for it to be an animation and not a live action, which some people had discussed, you know, with the, making it a live action. And I wanted it to be an animation because I thought it would have a bit longer to develop. Whereas if you have a live action or, you know, it take it can, it, or a film or something. You know, if it's no good, that's it. That's it's done. And even that took quite a while because you know, trying to get money, trying to raise money to do animation is really difficult. So I went back to them with the idea. From basically, you know, from doing all the events I've done, knowing how much children really reacted to the drawings and. The creative side of it and I pitched to Ken and Arabella the idea of doing like a magazine program of which the animation would be part of it so very much like all the programs that I loved when I was a kid you know like Vision On like Morph program like uh, Vision On had Morph which used to be a very small part of it you know they had Tony Hart who was doing drawing and other little bits of you know fun bits of animation and things like that in it and they seemed to really like that so uh, I think they talked to a few different companies. And then Ken ha- got a meeting with uh, Lucy at Sky, who's commissioning editor there. And I was like, OK, so what's this meeting about then? And Ken said to me, she just wants to meet you. And I remember thinking, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm, ju- I'm not going to just go and meet somebody. So I went into this meeting like armed with everything I could possibly think of for that would make, you know, that I wanted to put in a TV show. I showed the all the kids drawings, you know, talked about Blue Peter and the badges and how all the sort of things that I thought could go in it, like d- make it, draw it, sing it, play it, all the music we had and all the different things, and they really responded. So actually that side of it happened relatively quickly. I think the contracts and things took a bit longer. And we were just about to get the go-ahead and the green light for production, and that was January, February, and then COVID happened. So they wanted me to, to present the drawing parts of it. So initially um, they were going to be filmed up in Scotland and everything. So what the production company did, which is a company called Wildchild Animation, the producer there and the rest of the team, they sort of put their heads together and they worked out a way of being able to film and to carry on doing whole program because sky cut kind of like half the budget. <laughs> um and we just sort of thinking, oh I don't know if we, you know, is this are we going to be able to have to go ahead with this? But actually what we did was um we got to all the songs, the Tom Gates songs, we used all of those and they were all animated into videos. I kind of worked on storyboards for what I would imagine like whole programs to be. We had to use the minimum of animation because you know we didn't have such a large budget for it. The make were done as stop frame animation. And they were actually filmed up in one of the, one of the animators uh, um, loft conversion. (laughs) So everybody just sort of chipped in, you know, all the filming for my parts were all done in this studio here. So we had two weeks, you know, had to turn it clear the whole place out. We had to block it out. The director who only incidentally only lives around the corner from me. So I could probably shout at him from here. He wasn't allowed in here. So Mark, because of his experiences being a music engineer and producer was, was able to handle all the, you know, the, the sort of technical side of it. I, w- I don't think we would have been able to do it without him. And it was just m- me and Mark sitting in this <laughs> with <laughs> overhead cameras and one in front of me, um, really hot. <laughs> and I said at the end of it, I wish I'd smiled more. I think it was quite, you know, <laughs> it's like, so I had to do all the drawing, everything in real time. So somehow actually everyone, you know did an incredible job and put the put the show together and the first sky were delighted with it first 10 episodes came out in january i did a sky vip event where they have to sign up and people take part in it sky said it's the biggest one they've ever done (laughs) so it's amazing you know you just get these opportunities to do things and that's what i was saying about the kind of the music and the world and you know doing all those extra things it might not have seemed like a sensible idea in the past but actually all the things that have happened since I think have really you know have really helped flesh out the world and given it a longevity that maybe it might not have had before and and sadly I am a cliche that like Mark and I even wrote the theme tune. Ah, <laughs> Well one of my questions
0: was going to be what would your tips be to any authors or indeed publishers who wanted to take a children's book story beyond the book? So I'm guessing one of your, one of your things is to say, you know, you would encourage people to take any opportunity and really think outside the box.
1: I absolutely, I mean, it's, you know, I was very, I was in a, fortunate position you know the the book started to do quite well quite early on and I did used to put you know I would pay for things myself to get that's not to say that my publishers weren't incredibly supportive and didn't do their bit as well but I'd quite often do things that nobody was asking me to do you know like if I wanted to write music or you know to do that side of it then then I I was able to do that and obviously because I've had Mark who could put that into practice but you know if you've got other skills or things if you've got ideas I always think don't wait to be asked you know? and also I think because I was freelance as well and I just always have that feeling that it's all gonna end you know, you know that was the whole point about you know writing books because I didn't you know I didn't you're always waiting for, an, for a job to come through so I always always assumed like Do more than is expected of you and I try to do that with my events as well like you know to try and pack things in and do extra things and I would bring my own get my own bookmarkers done or try and do extra things as well and it has to be you've got to have fun with it as well you've got to enjoy what you're doing because if you don't it's miserable so I have literally found a way of doing all the things that I really loved doing and try to sort of put them in the books you know quite honestly I mean there are some people that are incredibly good at, and passionate uh, talking about or telling stories or you know doing that side of it but I was so unconfident about that, that side of it when I started so like I said you know that was one of the ways that I I used um to give me a bit of structure to doing that side of it um so that that would be my advice is um you know you can't I think these days In some respects, it's never been easier to get your message out because you can do it yourself, you know, on Instagram and all that sort of thing. But it's also never been harder because there's so many people out there and trying to actually, you know, get people's attention or do something about it is quite a difficult thing to do. So finding a way that you can talk about your book or that you can do something about it that's that's true to what how you feel about it, you can't do something, you know, you can't pretending to do something. but actually, it's, it makes it more interesting is that how it gives you another way to talk about it, it gives it gives you another way to, um, to let people know what you're doing. It's really hard. I mean, you know, publishers do their bit and do their best. But you can't leave everything up to them.
0: I don't think that's really interesting. No, so take the initiative.
1: Yeah, I mean, I always as well as
0: be creative.
1: Yeah, I always, but, you know, I'm always amazed that like, the publicists always say to me that, because you know, whenever, when, whenever I was doing events, this is a tip I would say to other authors, so I always turned up with everything I needed. I mean, literally everything <laughs> from bits of kit, you know, wires, everything, paper, pens. So I was as self-sufficient as possible. So you could literally go in and set yourself up and do it and not have to rely on anybody at all. And I've kind of tried to do that every everything I've done just always make sure that you've got everything that, you know, it's, it's not that you've just been so, totally controlling. It's just, it's actually just, it's a really useful tip. Yeah. Make sure
0: you're prepared. No, I like that one.
1: <laughs> now um, we're nearly out of time, but I just
0: have three quick fire questions that we ask all our guests. And the first one is who in the children's book world do you really admire and why?
1: Oh, I suppose, um, Well, thinking back to what really got me started on things, I think I had a Quentin Blake came to my college when I was a student and I did graphic design, I really wanted to do illustrations, but my tutors um, wouldn't let me. They said I'd be better off to, they thought I was much more suited to graphic design and I used to sort of rebel in my own small way and any chance I, did, I could to do illustration or any time I could sneak into the illustrators lectures or anything I would and I snuck into Quentin Blake's and it was just really inspiring and I remember listening to the way he talked about how, how he tried to make text you know all the extra things that he would draw how he had terrible drawing days and good drawing days and the fact that he's still making amazing drawings now uh, in an elderly elderly age is brilliant I used to feel the same way about Judith Kerr as well yeah i see, fantastic. see i see Judith Kerr with a, holding a glass of wine at an event looking absolutely immaculate smiling and chatting to everyone and I used to think you know, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be like. <laughs> and actually, as well, I know you've said one person, but three, Michael Rosen as well, because Michael Rosen was always incredibly supportive, um, always very generous. And he definitely set me off. I've done a few events with him. He set me off at, on the Roald Dahl Funny Book Prize. So he was always incredibly supportive.
0: What is the best thing about making and selling children's books in the UK? Oh, the best thing. Um,
1: the best thing is, Just if you had told my 10-year-old, 9 or 10-year-old dyslexic self that you would end up writing funny stories for a living and drawing pictures and making clay badges and drawing on shoes and then doing it on TV, I just wouldn't have believed you. So the best thing for me is just being able to do all the things that I absolutely love doing. And... Doing it and and then seeing how much other people, other children, seeing the children getting as much pleasure out of the books as I've had making them, that's definitely got to be a plus.
0: And what are you looking forward to in the year ahead? Oh, so, oh God, like everyone, the end
1: of lockdown <laughs> parties. That sounds terribly shallow, doesn't it? Do you know my lovely publishers were so desperate to, for us to have a tenth anniversary party and. Shoe sure Wars came out last last year and we had a really lovely lockdown kind of you know like a, a zoom party for that and they asked me if I wanted another one and I was like can we not <laughs> can we not do one can we wait just let's just see if we might be able to get together that would be so nice so I'm really looking forward to being able to look into people's you know see people for real yes <laughs> definitely <laughs>
0: Well, let's hope that lockdown does end and we can all meet up and that we will be able to celebrate 10 years of Tom Gates in person because it is an incredible achievement.
1: Oh, thank you. <laughs> and uh, thank you for being on the podcast today. My pleasure. You literally just wound me up and I, not in a bad way, but I just said I'm like, I didn't stop talking. So <laughs> <laughs> no it's been
0: brilliant um and thank you to everyone who tuned in this podcast is called chapter and verse the art of selling children books my name is charlotte Eyre and the podcast is brought to you by rocket and the bookseller magazine don't forget to tune in next time